You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording, and lines are now closed. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah wa barakatuhu. Peace and blessings to all our listeners. Welcome to the Voice of Islam. It is Sunday, the 22nd of October, 2023. The time now is 10.04. This is the Weekend World Show with Arsene Ahmadi. Listen to Voice of Islam on Dab Radio, mobile and online, 24 hours a day. Broadcasting live from the Beth of Mosque in Morden. The Weekend World Show is a current affair show with the week's news, views and reviews from a faith and non-faith perspective, promoting the message of peace and unity, discussing religion, politics, sports and topics of faith and spirituality. A message of Islam for the West. Join us and share us with your views or stories by phoning us on 0208-687-7878 or you can tweet, tweet us at or x us at Voice of Islam UK. The views on the Weekend World Show are those of the individuals and guests and not necessarily the, of those of the Ahmadiyya Muslim Association. Weekend World on Voice of Islam. Weekend World on Voice of Islam. My co-host, as always, is Walid Ahmed, the chief librarian at the Bethel Fatou Mosque here in, modern, in uh, the, the modern mosque and editor of the Amdiya Muslim Bulletin. Good morning and assalamu alaikum, Walid. Peace and blessings to you with the emphasis on peace very much the need of the time, don't you think? Oh, absolutely. I mean, the way that the is going... Very much necessary. Indeed, and uh, it is often quoted, Walid, uh, that in war, it has been quoted by various people, um, it goes back to a philosopher, a Greek philosopher, uh, in war, truth is the first casualty, mm. or always the first casualty. Never a truer word than that as we see it pan out, as we see this scenario panning out in front of our eyes. Um the biggest story where the battle for truth is being fought at, at the moment is the blast at the Ahle Hospital uh, mm. blast, mm. where all sorts of versions of truth are coming out and uh, people are yeah. uh, amiss to what is the fact. Yeah. Um, very unfortunate what's happened. Um, we, uh, it's difficult, um, I think, for us on the radio station to uh, take a side one way or the other. Well, but we, I think, we, uh, we don't believe we cannot take the side mm. of killing civilians, whether it's by, done no. by Hamas or anyone. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Uh, justice has to prevail for ultimate peace. And what uh, Hamas did uh, on the 7th of October is inexcusable. It cannot be condoned. So we, we can't take sides, mm. but on the side of justice. Yeah. Yeah. So when it comes to who was responsible for that particular bombing mm. in that respect, I think uh, we're not in a position to be certain as to uh, who precisely was responsible. But mm. uh, at the same time, uh, we have to be careful in accepting the uh, American uh, stance because uh, in the past uh, we have been, uh, how can I put it, um, Misled? <laughs> uh, yes, in the past, we. Uh, I mean, there has been the, the episode of uh, uh, what is it? Weapons of mass destruction. Absence of truth, basically. Yes. Um, <laughs> the yes. Iraq War you're referring the to. The Iraq War. Yes. And then the killing of uh, what is it? The uh, removing of 
infants from incubators yes. by the Iraqis. That yes. was something that was promoted by by the United States, which yes. is uh, total lie, uh, not correct. Yeah. And then uh, the um, uh, uh, what is it? The um, chemical weapons. Um, Colin Powell in the United Nations mm. carrying a vial. Uh, saying that this is the amount of uh, anthrax that could, uh, you know, uh, destroy large uh, and even in Syria there was uh, mm. accusation of uh, uh, phosphorus being used, uh, chemical weapons being yes. used, and it turned out that uh, that wasn't the case. It, it wasn't the case. It, it might have been done mm. by their own organization mm. that that would have used it possibly as well. And 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 there's been history with Israel yeah. as well. Yeah. But uh, either way, I mean, I, what, what I'm what I think uh, the other the other point about this this war, mm. when you're talking about war, truth is the first casualty. Truth is also used, um, or lies are also used as a cover mm. for uh, exacting revenge and uh, inflicting uh, inflicting death and destruction. Uh, wanton, wanton death and destruction, and that's uh, and that's where falsehood is, is used Indeed. to substantiate and to uh, to satisfy that. Indeed, that. And, and and with this uh, hospital bombing, mm-hmm. I mean we've had issues before where when the Israeli, sorry, when the Al Jazeera U.S. Palestinian reporter was killed, and uh, or oh, Shireen, Shireen Al Akhle, yeah, Shireen Abu Akhle. Yeah. Uh, when the Israelis said, well, it's not us, it's, it was killed by them. Yeah. Uh, and then many months later, when the story had subsided, then mm. they, 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 yes, it could have been us. Yes, you know, C- certain film, film emerged, but footage yeah, emerged. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it, it was quite exactly, and, and, and that's happened. And even on this one, uh, you know, this, they had bombed the hospital a day or two before, mm. uh, and then they given warnings evacuate mm. and then the bomb takes place you know they say yeah. you know, if he walks like a duck talk, yeah. quacks like a duck it must mm. be a duck yeah. and, <laughs> okay. and, and that this, uh, this lends to that let's, let's listen to what the archbishop of the hospital uh, who's in charge of the hospital mm. um, Arabi Baptist Hospital uh, is the name and the archbishop is Hassan Noom uh, this is uh, what he said um, uh, in the press statement mm. uh, about the bombing. In terms of the warnings that you've got, could you tell us what form of warnings were they written warnings, telephone calls, like, and how many of them were there ahead of this? this you know, uh, we, we have, you know, since the uh, decision being made about uh, evacuation of North Gaza to the south of Gaza, we have received three warnings. So beginning, I think, Saturday, Sunday, and so these three were in many by by telephone. They will call the administration, telling them them as much as they did with them, because they have their, their phone numbers of all the uh, directors of the hospital. So they can uh, they either send a message or uh, whatever means they have uh, to notify. Um, and uh, so that's these are the three warnings that they want. So you received, not only do you receive three warnings after the first strike to, to, to your church, saying that the hospital would be bombed. The warnings they were to evacuate the hospital. To evacuate the hospital. Yes, that was the warning. But the warning was, other, I'm sorry to be clarified, that, that was implicit in that was the idea that the hospital would be bombed because you had to evacuate it. They were saying you know, the to evacuate the, the hospital. The connection you make, you know, what happened on the facts on the ground, uh, three days before the actual bombing, and the hospital was hit in the two floors that I mentioned. And then we received, continued to receive the notices to evacuate 
and then uh, the, the hospital was struck last night. So th these are the facts on the ground uh, that, that actually happened. That's an amazing press statement. I'll tell you why, for, for, mm -hmm. for, three, for three reasons. Number one, how the media plays. So they were trying their best to um, put into the words of the mouth of the Archbishop that they were warned about the bombings. That's one thing, how the press will try to push for a story. Number two is that uh, how uh, the Archbishop remained to the truth. And he said, all I'm telling you is that we were given the warnings. I don't know who bombed. Okay. Right? So mm -hmm. the, the, the press was trying to say that. And number three, that this gives a different narrative mm. to what is being given. And Channel 4, I believe, got to the truth far better than anyone else. Mm -hmm. And they seem to be indicating that the, the, the attack was by Israel. Mm. Now, we don't know the exact truth and we can't say, but we certainly will wait. But mm. there was another attack on another church as well. Uh, mm -hmm. there, was press, there was a press uh, 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 release or statement from the Reverend of the Bethlehem, uh, Reverend Mitri Rehab, and he gave this press statement of what happened. I mean, uh, the the church compound was bombed uh, yesterday uh, night. Uh, there are so far 20 people, uh, Christians, uh, killed in this bombing and uh, 14 people injured. Uh, these are uh, Christian families who were looking for a refuge, uh, for a sanctuary to go to because they were fearing for their lives with all the bombing, the safest place was the church. Uh, and unfortunately, exactly there, they were uh, killed. Uh, so that was uh, at the St. Propriferous Church in Gaza, excuse my pronunciation there, uh, but another church which is attacked, which is called 20, the, the pastor Mitri Rehab said that it was Christian. So, look, the, the, very sad things that are happening. Um, we just pray that uh, peace prevails in that uh, area. Uh, we will be talking about how to achieve that peace in the show we lead today, mm -hmm. because we don't want to talk about the the, the, the dichotomy of the war that is created, uh, but how we can attain peace, because this is what we're all praying for, are we not? Yes, absolutely, and um, it's uh, very sad um, that uh, world leaders aren't able to stop the violence. We've had since that uh, atrocity on, on the 7th, 7th of October. Indeed. We've had... And, and, uh, and we make no bones about it. It's a terrorist attack and uh, we condemn it completely. Yeah, killing of civilians Absolutely. and uh, children um, cannot be, cannot be condoned be in, any, no. in any form. So what have we got on the show, Elith, uh, to discuss all these today? Well, we've got, uh, first up will be Rabbi uh, Jeff Berger, um, who has been on the show many times and he's kindly agreed to be with us uh, again today and talk about the impact of his, uh, this bloody war uh, that it has uh, and um, um, uh, particularly the impact of this war on the Jewish community and what efforts are being made to quell the situation. Uh, we then have our life of Ahmed, uh, the life of the founder of the Muslim community. That particular series is going to continue. We'll discuss uh, how we coped with personal attacks on him. Maybe a lesson to be learned for anyone uh, in these trouble in these troubled times. Indeed. And after eleven o'clock, we'll be joined by Tamim Abu Bakr, uh, an uh, Islamic uh, scholar and a Jordanian Ahmadi Muslim, to give us his take on the future in the. 
the Middle East and how we can try to achieve some sort of normality in that part of the world. Indeed. And uh, have you got off the bomb? Yes, Daniel Kalam will be joining us in that particular <coughs> segment and take a look at some of the examples of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, when he was under attack and how he led the wars he had to face that were imposed upon him. Indeed, some lessons there. Uh, Shai is not here with us today, so maybe we'll be able to have a quick look at the cricket and mm. uh, and the life of Sir Bobby Charlton, the great f- English footballer, the yep. World Cup winner at that. Mm. Uh, a name I remember from 1966 myself. Interesting mm. thought-provoking show, I hope, in store. Anyone eager to comment, please do so on 028-687-7878 or you can tweet us at Voice of Islam UK. Uh, right, let's get on to our first segment of the show, which is the news review. Weekend World. Look at this week's news, views and reviews. Right, Waleed. Uh, mm. Obvious story. We're going to be discussing the war in the Middle East. Uh, ABC News with their headline, Israel is at war, says Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. Uh, what do they write? They say that more than a week after Hamas terrorists rained thousands of rockets down on Israel and infiltrated the country by air, sea and land in an unprecedented surprise attack. The region stands on the brink of war with fears of a wider conflict and thousands dead on both sides of the Israeli-Gaza border. Yes, they continue. The conflict was touched off by the 7th October sneak attack, which included thousands of armed Hamas fighters breaching a border security fence and indiscriminately gunning down Israeli civilians and soldiers taken off guard. Other militants stormed beaches in Israel in motorboats and some brought death from the sky, swooping in on paragliders. Uh, More than uh, 1,400 people have been killed in Israel, including children, and more than 4,500 people have been injured, uh, according to Israeli uh, officials. At least 3,400 people have been killed in Gaza and more than 12,000 have been injured, according to the Palestinian Health Authority. So this is... ABC News. Uh, this is, I think, a bit dated. I think this the yes, it, 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 it was the day it was uh-huh. the attack. So right. yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So this is how it was. The news was broken. Right. Uh, we'll listen to some of uh, what was what happened on the day. Okay. Uh, here's, a, here's a short clip. It began Saturday morning with a massive rocket barrage from Gaza striking across Israel. While targets were hit, the likely intent here was to keep Israelis indoors, to distract from the invasion. Others attacking border points and fence lines, all while thousands of rockets rained down. Others using boats. Meanwhile, on the ground, hundreds of Hamas fighters poured across breached border points smashing Israel's defenses, heading to more than 20 communities in a house-to-house search, largely unopposed. This happening across a wide area, in communities which were clearly part of a targeted plan. Once there, the fighters killed indiscriminately in the single deadliest day in Israel's existence. Indeed, very sad news when it broke out and we covered it in our last show as well. Um, joining us, believe, uh, mm. to discuss this horrific situation is a very special friend of the show, but one who must be suffering the shock 
that his community has had to suffer. Rabbi Jeff Berger is an interfaith advisor, broadcaster, writer, and a chaplain. Since 2018, he has been involved in interfaith outreach efforts to build bridges of understanding and compassion between and among faith leaders in the UK and further afield. Uh, good morning, Rabbi Jeff, and shalom to you. Assalamu alaikum, Hassan. Thank you so much for the privilege of being on Voice of Islam this morning. Uh, Jeff, the privilege is always ours. Uh, we are always looking for people of reason, and the efforts that you have put uh, has always made me want you on my show on a regular basis. It is a sad occasion to be speaking on, but a conversation essential, I feel, if we are to build bridges and keep our respective communities safe here in the UK. Your initial thoughts on that, uh, Rabbi, and what's happening in uh, in the Middle East? Uh, well, thank you. Um, it is uh, less than two weeks since the, the devastating attack uh, on Israel by the Hamas terrorists. Mm. And in the first instance, I think that um, the focus was on restoring security along the Gaza border, uh, but, you know, it has left an indelible uh, mark and it will be uh, something that is remembered in the history of Israel from now and going forward. But what what I want to say initially, first of all, is that I recognize that I'm speaking to a mostly Ahmadiyya community who live by the motto of love for all and hate for none, and that I am not an expert on the Israel-Palestine history or conflict uh, but I come to be with you today in humility and in friendship. Um, and so the the first part of the response to the community locally was obviously one of immense fear and pain, uh, a lot of anxiety and helplessness. Uh, in, in essence, people were feeling overwhelmed uh, because uh, even though this is a small Jewish community of perhaps 300,000 uh, Jews in the entire United Kingdom of a population of maybe 66 million, um, we, we cannot help but feel that umbilical cord connection to uh, to the families that we have in Israel and to the survival of of Israel. And I realize that uh, you know some of the things that I say might be uh, uh, words that trigger a response in your audience. And I I again need to repeat that I'm not trying to um, uh, create any you know, sort of equivalence by comparing the dead on one side versus the other. What we're really mostly concerned about is um, the, the idea that too many people now are dying and that um, most of them are innocent civilians. Indeed, uh, I think we share those thoughts and and, and very welcoming at that uh, uh, at that uh, because uh, of your nature and the way you approach this. But in terms of uh, whenever something like this happens, it's some it does tend to overspill into the United Kingdom as well. And what sort of fears went through the Jewish community when this happened? Uh, what were the initial thoughts of the community, and what sort of uh, 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 physical attacks or abuse uh, have people had and have you had any? Uh, for, fortunately for myself I cannot say that I've experienced anything 
in the way of uh, um, an increase in anti-Semitic uh, um, abuse and and uh, and crime, hate crime. Mm. Um, but uh, what I would say is that I've been to uh, numerous briefings now uh, with the communal leaders, with the council leaders, with the police, and an organization which is called CSP, which is the organization that monitors hate crime uh, towards the Jewish community, and uh, they have indicated that the, uh, the frequency uh, and the number, the total number of incidents that have been reported uh, over the last two weeks is at about somewhere between a 350 to 500% increase mm. over what it was a year ago. Now, most of those are verbal uh, and some of them involved, uh, you know, driving through neighborhoods provocatively with flags and, and shouting. Um, but largely and very thankfully, None of them have involved fatalities like we just heard on the news of a, a rabbi in Detroit who uh, was was stabbed to death. Um, can I just Go digress on. for a moment yeah, yeah, sure. and share something with you, which is from the Talmud? You know, I, I, I yes, like to in, in, include a little bit of Talmudic wisdom whenever we speak. And um, there is a remarkable passage yes. um, that is in the Babylonian Talmud that was written, compiled around 500 in the Common Era, so it's more than 1,500 years ago. And the rabbis were uh, looking at both issues of jurisprudence and uh, legal, uh, legal uh, cases, but as well they included a lot of homiletic uh, information that you know that we can take with us to sort of guide our day-to-day uh, -day life, perhaps a little bit like hadiths are to the Quran, the Talmud is to the scriptures, and uh, we have this beautiful passage uh, mm. in uh, in one of the books that talks about women and uh, and pregnancy, and it says that 40 days before the birth of a child, an angel teaches all of the Torah which I interpret to mean all of the wisdom of the world, mm -hmm. to an unborn fetus. But just before it is born, it is tapped on the lip, on the upper lip, and it forgets everything. And that is why we think that, you know, we have this indentation in our upper lip, which is called a filcrum. But I think what the implication is, and I've heard from my Muslim colleagues that there is a similar idea in uh, Islam, that embedded in our DNA is a knowledge of all of God's truth and wisdom. And we are endowed with the ability to recognize love just as much as we can recognize, unfortunately, hate and... Uh, and yeah, and Talmud is a is a, a set of books within the Jewish faith. They're not part of the Torah, are they? No, the, the Torah is the written, uh, what we call right. the written scripture, and the yes. Talmud was the oral tradition that developed alongside of it. Uh, we believe that it, it goes back to the same period of time when Moses was on Sinai, yes. but it wasn't uh, written down and codified until, uh, as I mentioned, about 1,500 years ago. And but, but um, you know, in, in regards to uh, the question, um, I think um, the community here is doing everything that it can mm. to um, try to promote uh, the social cohesion that we've spent years, if not decades, working on. We live side by side. 
Um, you've seen perhaps pictures of the three women who uh, accompanied uh, a Jewish lady to her synagogue on Friday night recently. Did, we've, yes. we've had stories of of uh, people coming together in prayer. You've seen perhaps the Archbishop with the Sheikh, uh, Sheikh Mogra and mm-hmm. Rabbi Jonathan Wittenberg uh, making a statement calling for peace. And then, of course, um, you know about the effort in uh, Hertfordshire uh, last uh, Thursday yeah. to, to get uh, more than 30 faith leaders to come together uh, and pray silently uh, with a message uh, that was delivered by uh, His Majesty the King, em- emphasizing the importance of interfaith and the importance of us living together here in the United Kingdom. Indeed, in fact, I was my next question was going to be that war, unfortunately, brings out the worst in people, but uh, it also brings out the good in many people. And uh, what you have just described is just that. And you yourself have been engaged in multi-faith, interfaith. You've already attended an event yourself uh, between the different faiths in the last few days, I believe. Can you tell us a little bit about what uh, what that event was and uh, what happened there? Well, I've been to a, a number of different e- events. I've been to events where there were members of the government who were, um, you know, sort of trying to uh, provide a sense of con- consolation and comfort mm. to a community that feels traumatized. But I've also been to this, you know, this most recent event, uh, which uh, in- involved uh, the-, the Lord Lieutenant from Hertfordshire um, and uh, members of the uh, the Church of England. It was it was co-hosted by the Bishop of St Albans, um, and um, I-, I think it was an important. Uh, showing that no matter how terrible um, we all feel, and we feel it personally, and each one of us feels it from our own narrative perspective. And I'm sure that, you know, the the way I see things will be different than the way that Muslim colleagues and, and perhaps many of your listeners will see it. But one of the things that we were trying to get across uh, is that... Um, it's absurd to think that the God of all creation has to listen to prayers from competing sides who are praying that their soldiers and fighters will be successful to eliminate the soldiers and fighters of the other team. Mm. Uh, the, 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 the Jewish history <clears throat> has been quite a gruesome one in Europe, particularly uh, 12th century you know, the, the, uh, in England, there was extreme um, opposition to the Jewish and the way they were persecuted. And we know about the Holocaust, the six million Jews that were killed during World War Two and the pogroms of Russia in the early 1900s. So Jewish history in Europe has been a difficult one with very with a lot of suffering. It has. Um, thank you. Um, thank you for pointing that out to your listeners. Um, I think that... Um, one of the things that was triggered by the 7th of October attack was uh, the historic memory of many of those other periods of persecution. Mm. And, you know, it's one of the things that I learned over the past summer. Uh, I went to a remarkable conference um, in, in which we were talking about how to heal the traumas of the past. Yeah. One of the things that, that I learned was that if we don't address trauma, then what ends up happening is it gets carry, it gets passed on to the next generation. Yeah. And I, I look and, and, you know, 
obviously I don't have a solution to what's happening now um, in in this particular cycle of violence, which has been you know sort of the most vicious mm. in the last fifty years. But one of the things that is so clear to me is that we are raising generations of young people to mistrust or even I, I might say to hate each other. Indeed. And and it's that legacy of trauma that we have to stop. We have to we may not be able to break the cycle of violence, but we have to stop the legacy of passing hatred from one generation to an, to the next. Otherwise this will never come to an end. Indeed. And uh, the Jew- Jewish Muslim history uh, has been one of peace between the two, na- between the two faiths. Um, even when <coughs> Queen Isabella and King Ferdinand expelled Muslims from uh, Spain in the 1500s, uh, the Jewish community also fled because they felt safe under the Muslim rule than under the Christian rule of uh, Isabella and Ferdinand. I'm not saying Christian rule per se, but just under those to monarchs, uh, the Jewish did not feel safe at all. And the history has always been, and, and I've heard many a rabbi uh, speak about this, that the Jewish-Muslim uh, history together has been a very congenial one and very peaceful one. I, I would agree with you in uh, in many uh, ways. Um, I'll just add that, you know, in our um, telling of the story of the expulsion from uh, Spain and then subsequently from Portugal mm. uh, by uh, uh, Ferdinand and Isabella. Um, uh, we were given the opportunity to convert to Christianity or uh, or to leave, mm. and uh, in in that case, um, most opted to to leave. Um, but what's interesting is um, I'm told that the sultan in um, Istanbul sent ships to help transport some of the, the, the Jews who were who were looking for a safe passage. So, yes, and, and then we've got the period uh, well before that of Andalusia, mm. where um, in the 11th to 13th centuries... And that, was, Jews, that was pre-Isabella Ferdinand, and that was about a 700-year period. Yes, it yeah. was. I mean, it was. It was what what became known as the golden age, hmm. right? Of of many of our cultures. Correct. Um, yes. So yes. Yeah. So and and I think that much is being done here in the United Kingdom between the Jewish and the Muslim communities to make sure that we we remember and we cherish. I believe that, so. Uh, uh, there was there was an event. I don't know if you remember when there was a Christian pastor in uh, I think for Florida or. Or California, who wanted to burn the Quran and became headline news Florida. in Florida, and uh, <coughs> excuse me, and this sort of overspilled into the United Kingdom. And here at Bethel Fatou Mosque, what we did was we invited all the faith leaders of all the faiths, including Jewish speakers, uh, for a rabbi, and who read from their own uh, holy scriptures and shared each other's scriptures with each other and gave our scriptures to each other to show that we have no hatred for each other. And that, I thought that was a very powerful right. way of showing how to respect each other rather than being divisive to each other. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, um, I can think of other situations also that occurred in Europe when um, there were uh, difficulties or attacks, when groups, large groups of people would come and surround a house of worship, mm. holding hands in a circle to make sure that... Um, anyone who intended ill would be thwarted yeah. by you know, the vision of, of good people standing up for goodness. Indeed. Just one last thing, uh, Rabbi. Okay. The, 
Middle East issue is a political one, as far as we are concerned. It is nothing to do with faith. Um, And it should be portrayed as that, that this is a political battle that's taking place. Uh, The Palestinian people are a combination of Muslims, Christians and Jews. Um, And therefore, we want to look at it as a political issue. And the faith should never have to undergo any sort of suffering because not only has anti-Semitism increased, as you have rightly pointed out, 300 to 500% increase, but so has Islamophobia at the yes. same place as well. Yes, and, yes. and uh, it, it, would be, yeah. it would be remiss of me not to mention um, how much I understand that not only, in fact, some of, the, some of the press briefings and the police briefings that we've had recently are not just about the increase in anti-Semitism, but in, in the enormous increase in Islamophobia in the mm. United Kingdom. Um, I, I think that you know m- some people are using this as an opportunity to spread hate. Um, we saw that you know in uh, demonstrations where people were celebrating uh, a, a massacre of, of human beings. Indeed. Um, and and my sympathies. Uh, go to the Islamic community here in the United Kingdom as as much as to the innocent people in Gaza who um, are suffering beyond imagination. Beyond imagination, um, I, correct. I, I have one. I have just one thought, um, yes. if you'll allow me, before we close, and that is, you know, this story going going back to the story of the angel that teaches us everything that we know hmm. uh, before we're born, and then uh, you know, and then causes us to forget it. So that when we come across truth, we actually know what it is, because we once had it in our unconscious minds. So we have this uh, follow-up saying that says that when a person leaves this earth, um, the first encounter that we have is with that spiritual being, that angel who taught us everything that we were supposed to know and use as tools for living. And the angel says to us, so what did you do with all that wonderful knowledge that I gave you? And to us, there is no nothing worse, you know, than purgatory or eternal hell than actually recognizing all the things that we did in our life versus all the potential that we might have had had we lived in the way that we were taught with the wisdom that's embedded in our souls. Mm. And I know that we both believe that human beings are created in the image of God, and I pray that we will be worthy of that image in the days and the weeks ahead. Amen to that. And uh, just uh, to close on my side, if you ever visit an Ahmadi mosque, you will find in most of the mosques there's an inscription in the dome or in the mosque itself where the translation of that is, it is in the remembrance of God that one finds peace in their heart. And, uh, and Yeah, and that is the sentiment that you were just trying to share as well. And one thing I remember the fourth caliph of the Amdi Muslim community once said in a question-answer session that even an atheist, when he's in, in, in total strife and feels totally helpless, even he sometimes will turn to God and say, oh God, help me, even though he's an atheist. So yes, mm-hmm. to God should we all turn and to Amen. him can we find internal peace. Amen. Amen. Rabbi, thank you very much, Rabbi Jeff Berger, for sharing your thoughts and sharing your positivity, which is what we are trying to do here on Voice of Islam, to, to, to not to create greater conflict, but to share what we can do to create peace. God bless you. Amen. May we all succeed. Uh, yes, and please, our condolences to your community, and any help that we can offer, we would love to come and share it with thank you. you.
Thank you. I stand together with you Amen. in peace, in friendship, and in humility. Thank you very much, Rabbi Jeff Berger uh, from North London. Believe uh, that was yeah. Rabbi Jeff, as always, very, uh, very powerful in in his uh, sentiments and uh, a, a great uh, man to want peace. Yes, certainly. I concur. Thank you very much. Right, let's move on because uh, we spent a lot, a long time with the rabbi, and it was important to do that. Uh, we're now coming on to the faith in focus. We've been talking about the life of uh, the promised Messiah, alayhi salam, the peace be upon him, and uh, we've been talking different aspects of him about, particularly in the last few programs about attacks and attitude towards other people. He himself was uh, drew a lot of opposition. And this was uh, some of them were extremely personal and vile against him. Mm. So how did he? Because <clears throat> in, in, in in connection with what's going on mm. about attacks and and uh, you know we talk about anti-Semitism and Islamophobia, this is all aspect of that. How mm. did the promised Messiah, Islam himself, deal with that situation? Yes. So uh, yes, he. In I don't know whether you can hear me, <clears throat> but um, I think that he presented a very good example of uh, how to respond to provocation mm. and how not to allow anger and uh, this uh, desire of retribution and revenge uh, overpower him. In fact, um, he was extremely patient when it came to uh, receiving abuse uh, from his opponents. Mm -hmm. um, he never responded to abuse in kind, so he yeah. would never retaliate in the same way. And uh, I've related this story before, but it's a very um, important one. Um, and this anecdote he used to relate about, I think Sadi is the, the author or the origin of this uh, particular story. And he said that a learned man once, once came home having, uh, having been bitten by a dog. And now on seeing the wound, his little daughter, out of her innocence, uh, she was little, she, out of her innocence, she asked her father, if the dog bit you, why did you not bite the the, the dog back? Uh, and the father replied, that if the dog bit you, that, um, uh, that God has made us human beings. Mm. We do not behave like dogs and bite, and bite back in response. So this is uh, uh, something that characterized the uh, founder of the Amdemus community, Hazrat Musa Ghulam Ahmed. And he said that when a person is abused, and cursed by a wretch, it is incumbent upon a believer to abstain from responding in kind. Otherwise, this example of dog-like behavior shall be applicable to such people. The beloved of God have been abused with the worst of invectives and are grieved in the worst possible manner. Mm. However, they are always addressed in the following words, turn away from the ignorant. This is a verse from the Holy Quran. So one of his companions, uh, Malvi Abdul Karim, testifies that the founder of the community would never even speak ill of such opponents, even in cotton conversations. He recalls a certain opponent by the name of Zatali, who published a pamphlet against the uh, promised Messiah, the founder of the community, full of filth. Yet he did not. Uh, the, yet this did not upset him in the slightest, and he continued in his work as normal. The point here was that he was writing, engaging in discussions and debates solely for the sake of Allah in promoting the truth and refuting falsehoods. So personal attacks against him, however vile, 
were of no consequence to him. He once said, I possess such control over myself, and God Almighty has made my soul so true a Muslim that if someone were to sit before me and went on uttering for an entire year the most filthy and obscene profanities that one could imagine, ultimately they would be embarrassed themselves and would have no choice but to concede that they were unable to weaken my patience. I would be able to withstand any such onslaught without any difficulty. So patience and forbearance was the message. Um, but some of the opponents really wanted to harm him and mm. put cases against him in courts. Uh, yeah. did, didn't that affect him? Did that weaken his uh, the, uh, his resolve? Yeah. Mm. Well, no, apparently not. His companions report that even the most terrifying of threats made against him did not worry him. Uh, there was even a case of attempted murder, and we talked about it in one of the previous programs. This was an attempted murder, a case of attempted murder brought against him. It was all based on lies, but was brought against him by Christian missionaries, mm. aided and egged on by the Aryas, and unsurprisingly by other Muslims of all people as well. Um, however, this was soon found to be fraudulent, this particular case, and the perpetrators were found out and humiliated in court. Then there, was, there were occasions of news of conspiracies being hatched against him. He listened to them, he took note of them, mm. but he was not unduly worried um, and uh, uh, perturbed by them. He once said, that at a time of trial, it is the weak-hearted from among my community from whom I worry. So he was worried more about the effect it will have on his following. Um, my state of affairs, he says, are such that even if I were to hear a clear voice saying, you are forsaken and not a, not a single one of your desires will be fulfilled, I swear by God's being there would be there would be no decrease in my passion and love for God or in my service to the faith, because I have already seen God. Then he recited the following verses from uh, chapter 19, verse 66. He says, do, do you know any equal of his? In other words, uh, do you know of any equal of God Almighty? So uh, he, he felt that God was on his side, and if God is on his side, then nothing else should be of uh, a major concern. His companions say that the pressure that these kinds of actions brought about him uh, about, brought about with them would have crushed any man, but not the founder of the community. He would carry on unperturbed. Now, there was a reason for this level of confidence and self-assurance in the wake of these devastating attacks. It, and it raised, or it rested in his belief in God Almighty. He once said, nothing transpires on earth until it is first decreed in heaven. Nothing can happen without the will of God Almighty. He will not disgrace and waste his, uh, waste his servant. So this was the root of his self-assurance. He was convinced that he was from God, that his claim was true, and he was indeed promoting the truth. With God Almighty on his side, no one could bring any harm to him, and this was indeed the case. Indeed, and uh, the promised Messiah was utterly devoted to God Almighty and totally submissive to his will, never complaining if things do not go his way. Can you give some examples of that? Well, certainly i give one, um, and it concerns his children. So like all parents, the founder of the community was devoted to his children. It is uh, related that when he was first born from his second wife, Ismuth was her name, fell ill. Uh, she fell, I think she may have contracted cholera. He did everything hum humanly possible to tend to her. He would run to, to and fro for, for her, to onlookers, it appeared that such was his concern for this uh, infant 
that uh, the promised Messiah would not be able to live without a, a materialistic person who, in ordinary worldly terms, inf- is infatuated and preoccupied with his children, could perhaps not have shown a greater example of toil and labor than what they were observing. Uh, the promised Messiah was expressing in looking after this infant. However, and this is something that they noted, that when she passed away, the promised Messiah was the founder of the community. He was a perfect example of patience and forbearance, resigned to the will of God. He stepped away as if nothing had happened and did not dwell over what uh, had passed. Such resignation and submission to the destiny and decree of God cannot be possible for anyone except those who are sent from Allah. So this conviction in Allah's support and total submission to his will was deeply ingrained in the character of the founder of the community and what kept him focused on his work, undisturbed uh, by the mischief of his enemies, unable to withstand eventualities of grief, which would perhaps uh, would have broken or mentally crippled any ordinary person. You said that the personal attacks against him or personal losses did not phase the promised Messiah. Uh, but uh, was there anything that did upset him? We are humans after all. Yeah, so there are certain things that did upset him, yes. Um, anything that was an affront to the majesty of God that, had, that was written or spoken, anything uh, that in terms of insults on Islam or the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, I mean, this affected him greatly and moved Um, And he was moved to write uh, effective responses. Uh, And once he said that it would be easier for me to see my property destroyed and my children cut to pieces before my eyes than to see the faith dishonored and seen with contempt and then for me to do nothing. Um, And during his life, uh, there was a hurtful publication um, called The Mother of the Believers. That was published, equivalent of the Stanic verses of his time. Um, it was nothing more than injury and offense. I mean, it was just uh, full of uh, uh, insults and presented not a single rational argument. I mean, this uh, goes drives down to, to the point that um, we do not object to people disagreeing with us so long as there is rational argument. But when insults and invectives are used for no other reason than just to, to cause injury, then that is objectionable. The founder of the Hamdi uh, community was very aggrieved when he learned of this particular book, Mother of the Believers, which was also one full of uh, insults, uh, and felt such anguish that he he said that bitter has my comfort become. So his comfort basically has has been has been has evaporated because of the kind of uh, dishonor and insults that is being heaped upon. Uh, the uh, Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, upon and on the faith of Islam. So this is what did upset him. Indeed. And the Promised Messiah was keen on people coming to stay with him in Qadiyan. Uh, so, uh, this was so even of those who had accepted him. Why was that? Why did he want even those who had already accepted mm. him to be in his company? Because he was aware of, acutely aware of the station that uh, the spiritual station that God had accorded him with. And Allah had infused him with uh, with immense knowledge and understanding. And this is something he felt obliged that he needed to share. He claimed that true knowledge and religious doctrine could best be learned in Qadian where he resided and nowhere else. In, in order to encourage his companions, he made a point of, of, uh, of mentioning those who made an effort to be near him.
and among these was Mufti Sadiq Sahib, uh, Mufti Muhammad Sadiq Sahib. And he uh, uh, used to work uh, in Lahore, mm-hmm. yet would come to Qadian at every, every opportunity. Like some of us who lived in Gillingham used to come to London yes. at every opportunity, <laughs> especially when His, His Holiness, the Khalifa that time, was here. So, and, uh, and the Prophet Sahib, the founder of the community, used to say, from Lahore, it is only Mufti uh, Sadiq Sahib who has devoted himself fully to me. And this was typical of those who were devoted to the Promised Messiah. Mufi Sadiq Sahib um, was, the, uh, was young at the time, probably in his uh, 20s. But his devotion to the founder of the community was exemplary. He would arrive in Patala. This is the railway station nearest to Qadian. There was no real link to Qadian itself, but Patala was the nearest one. He would arrive in Patala, rain or shine, sometimes in the middle of the night, even on foot, to be near the founder of the community and spend time with him. It was uh, his example that um, the uh, founder of the community inc- uh, that mentioned and encouraged his companions to follow. And no doubt there were uh, many like uh, like him who also made similar sacrifices in order to enjoy the company and learn and be blessed uh, while in his presence. And Mufti Sahib benefited greatly from being in the company in later life, didn't he? Yes, uh, he benefited greatly. You're absolutely right. Um, um, like other leading companions, he was able to disseminate the teachings of Islam. He accepted the founder of the Muhammadan community. He was only 18 years of old age and served as his private secretary also in the last three years of the life of the uh, promised Messiah, the founder of the community. So this proximity with the, the imam of the age put him in great stead to, to make huge progress as he did in his life. Uh, due to his excellent command of English, he came to the UK. This was in 1917, uh, delivered many lectures, uh, wrote numerous pamphlets. So in this way, he was able to disseminate what he had learned directly from his master to the British public, including the the, uh, survival, the teaching about the survival of Jesus from the cross. However, uh, arguably his biggest achievements were realized in the United States, in America, uh, Mufti Muhammad Sadiq Sahib was one of the pioneering missionaries there, arriving in 1920. Uh, there he was blessed with bringing as many as 700 Americans to Islam directly and over a thousand indirectly. It was what he had learned from the uh, founder of the community and the blessings and praise he earned from him that enabled uh, Mufti Sadiq Sahib to attain such successes. And here one of the striking features of his efforts was his belief as taught by the promised Messiah, peace be upon him, in racial integration between all uh, racial and ethnic groups, and not just African Americans. Uh, remember, this is in the in the twenties uh, in America when uh, segregation and racial discrimination was rife in the states, but he stood against it. He helped unite a multicultural group of Muslim immigrants and the local populations to build mosques and have congregational prayers, especially in Detroit and Chicago. More than that, he published Muslim uh, Sunrise, which is still, I think, running and is the longest-running Muslim publication in America. So this was the success of one who benefited from being close to the Promised Messiah. This is why the Promised Messiah, the founder of the community, wanted people to spend time with him so they can benefit from what he had to offer. He and Mufti Sadiq was able to learn much and then blessed uh, with uh, and was blessed with so many favors as a result. 
there were others like him who gained uh, so much from being in the uh, Promised Messiah's company. And it also explains, as I said earlier, why the Promised Messiah was so eager for his companions to spend time with him, for not for any personal uh, aggrandizement, but uh, so that he could share what God had endowed him with and uh, and through them, uh, through uh, this benefit, um, he could ben- they could benefit uh, as many people as possible elsewhere. And it was a plain sailing for the Mufti Sahib when he arrived there. He had a tough time there. Uh, what sort of things happened to him? Well, yes, uh, here, you know, it's uh, the passion of his faith infused by the founder of the community and his natural determination reinforced, reinforced by him getting uh, to the promised Messiah despite difficult circumstances. Uh, these were experiences that, again, must have helped him there because... Uh, yes, you're right. He wasn't plain sailing for him when he got to America. In fact, um, as soon as he got to, uh, um, he got to America, we landed in Philadelphia, I think, he was Im- immediately incarcerated uh, on suspicion that he was there to preach polygamy. Islam taught polygamy. Oh. Uh, yes. <laughs> so that was, uh, so, which was against the laws of the United States. However, he was able to successfully explain that why Islam allows polygamy, it does not make it compulsory, it does not impose it. Um, he still had to spend some time, some months in detention before he was released, but he was released in the end. And then that's when he went to New York, continuing his speaking and writing, and then to Michigan and eventually to Chicago, where he established the very first Amdiya um, Muslim Mosque in the United States. And um, uh, as mentioned earlier, the Islamic teachings of racial equality caught the imagination of the progressives in the country earning him an honorary doctorate from the Lincoln Jefferson University. Mm. And when we talk about Islam in America, his contribution is widely acknowledged to this day. So it was his perseverance, his determination, his skills, and no doubt prayers that helped him uh, make such a difference in his time. He only spent three and a half years there, apparently. But he made a very, very uh, lasting impact in that country as far as Islam was concerned. And that impact can very much be traced to the time he was able to spend, the amount he was able to learn in the company of the founder of the Omnia Muslim community. And I think it goes to demonstrate how important uh, it was and why the Promised Messiah felt that people should come and stay with him and learn from him so that they can benefit others. Indeed. Uh, Presumably, in like all things, that, you know, we see... We were discussing with Rabbi Jeff about anti-Semitism and Islamophobia. It's all about the ignorance of the other, Mm. right? Yes, there are people who might be very anti and very aggressive and violent to these sort of thinking. But unless you sit down and discuss these things, this uh, internal hatred won't move away. And and I think that is what the Promised Messiah wanted, that he wanted people to be around him Mm. so that they could understand the full meaning of what he has said. We, we see many people trying to debate what the promised Messiah said and this and the other without really knowing the inner yeah. beliefs and inner, yeah. inner yeah. Heart, uh, heartfelt belief yeah. of God Almighty mm. that was behind it all. And that's what he wanted to do by getting people to 
to be no. with him. Yeah. Maybe no. that's what Israel and the, the Palestinian people need to do as well. Mm. Sit with each other, talk to each other, spend time with each other. Mm. And that's where maybe where we, peace can be attained. Mm. Yes, and uh, there's this issue about people entrenched in their views mm. and not prepared to budge. Yes. And not prepared to listen to another person's views and be prepared to have an open mind and change yes. their own entrenched positions. Yes. And uh, the Promised Messiah has spoken on that, mm. that people should not be so entrenched but because mm. when they, if they see truth, mm. they should accept it. Yes. Right? Yes. Uh, but at the same time, if they know they're into, mm. uh, they have the truth, then they should share it with others mm. as well. No, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. indeed. Yeah. Uh, the life of the Promised Messiah is always very fascinating and I always look forward to that segment of the mm. show. So uh, anyway, we'll continue after the news. Uh, we've got... Uh, the Mima Budaka will be talking about an Islamic perspective on what's happening in the in, in the Middle East and mm-hmm. see how peace can be attained that way. Okay. You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text as this is a recording and lines are now closed. Just been called for Donald Trump. The decision taken to join the common market has been the reversed. The should call a general election. Order. Weekend World. Questions to the Prime Minister. Behind the headlines. Right, Relief. Assalamu alaikum and our listeners. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuhu. Welcome back uh, to the show, the Weekend World Show with Aslamdi and my co host, Waleed Ahmed. Uh, Waleed, we're going to our next segment of the show, Behind the Headlines. Um, Israeli strike continues to pound the Gaza Strip. The worst of these uh, strikes happened last night. A popular cafe in the city of Khan Yunus was targeted by an Israeli airstrike. Uh, we have seen videos from the scene that are too gruesome to be broadcast, the newspaper says. Um, this is Al Jazeera. Another strike hit a restaurant in a bustling market area as people were busy buying dinner with several casualties reported. What else do Al Jazeera say? Uh, over the last 24 hours, the bombardment has uh, intensified. The majority of casualties and those injured brought to hospitals are civilians, with a significant number of them being children and women. At least 3,785 Palestinians have been killed and 12,493 wounded in Israeli strikes in, on Gaza since uh, 7th October, the health ministry in Gaza said. Uh, this was on Thursday. Uh, of the total uh, death toll, 1,524 were children and 1,000 were women. And this is according to the ministry spokesman Ashraf al-Qudra. Um, he said this at the press conference. Many more have been killed since Thursday. Yes, and uh, joining us from the UK uh, is a Jordanian writer, lecturer, and an Islamic scholar who is resident panelist on the Al Arabiyah MTA TV channel. Uh, welcome and assalamu alaikum, Tamim Abu Dhaka, once again on our show. Wa alaikum assalam wa rahmatullah. Can you hear me? Uh, yes, we can. We can hear you nice and clearly. Always a pleasure to have you albeit after a long break, so we apologize for that, but I'm sure we'll have you back on our show again. Uh, Tamir, Tamir Saab, um, can I first of all ask you what Hamas did on the 7th of October, the killing of civilians, including women and children? What are your thoughts on that attack from an Islamic point of view? Actually, before that, we should clarify mm. uh, what had happened at that time. Okay. Uh, by the 7th of October, actually, Hamas uh, had uh, decided to 
uh, attack the Israelis' uh, uh, control points on the borders of Gaza. And it was a military, it was, let's say, it was planned to be a military uh, operation mm-hmm. against the Israeli, uh, the Israeli uh, control points uh, at that place. And they wanted to capture some soldiers uh, to uh, make some sort of, uh, uh, you can say, let's say, to take them as prisoners. Because with the Palestinians, they have thousands of prisoners in the prisons of uh, uh, Israel since a very long time. And they want to liberate them by exchange, the prisoners between uh, the Palestinians and uh, Israel. This was, uh, let's say, this operation was planned this way. But what had happened and what was surprising for Hamas and for all the world, actually, mm. the collapse of the uh, Israeli uh, uh, control points. Yes. Apparently, they were not uh, maybe expecting to have such kind of uh, attack to their uh, points. Mm. Uh, and uh, it was really a surprise, a big surprise for them. Right. After the collapse of, of their uh, military at that case, mm-hmm. actually, uh, they, because they attacked Hamas, they attacked almost from uh, 85 points uh, in uh, this border. Because of that, actually, and after the collapse of this line, which means the border line, uh, and this is according to what Hamas had said, the people of Gaza, some people of Gaza, uh, they entered inside, and uh, some of them are armed, and there, uh, because of that, uh, some actions, which means uh, a skirmish, and they were just, uh, I mean, uh, they exchanged shooting with the, the Israelis, mm-hmm. and they went and they get inside to the Israeli settlements around Gaza. And that was not planned at all. Uh, so uh, this case, which has happened, it was uh, happened because of this unorganized and because uh, unorganized act, and uh, because of that, uh, violations has happened. And uh, the speaker of Hamas said, "This what was happened." So the Hamas didn't uh, plan. Uh, to go and to kill women or children, and I don't know. Also, uh, uh, let's say, regarding killing women and children uh, or civilians, it was by I mean the, by normal people, by armed people, and it was m- maybe very little. But you know, the Israeli propaganda, they started to say they came and they capita- decapitated the children and uh, all of these things. It was, uh, you know, it was clear that they were just lies. We were, so this what was happened. We were, uh, me yes. and Waleed started the show that the first casualty of war is always truth. And what you are saying is uh, <coughs> that <coughs> seems to be part of the narrative. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> but uh, um, in terms of... Uh, uh, the stories around decapitating and raping women, that seems to be not verified by anyone. Uh, even Joe Biden, who initially said that he had seen pictures, had retracted that statement eventually uh, a few days later. So it's obvious, and, and, and no one has since verified them. But nevertheless, uh, women mm-hmm. and children did get killed, and uh, some of them were taken hostages as well. So from an Islamic point of view... Is that, uh, how do you see that particular aspect of what Hamas did? I fully understand 
that they they were oh. they themselves were surprised how easily they got in, and that is the weakness of the Israeli defense, and for which Netanyahu has to re- reply to his people for that. Mm-hmm. Uh, as I told you, first of all, actually, for Hamas, even uh, they themselves, they don't say actually we have the right to kill civilians, and they don't say also we should even. Uh, not uh, uh, we shouldn't even harm uh, the prisoners of war, mm. and that's uh, because you know it is very well mentioned in the Islamic uh, commandments and the commandments of the Quran and the Holy Prophet sallallahu mm. We have actually in Islam we have established the international uh, laws of war, humanitarian laws of war. Mm. The whole world never knew about these things. These were established by. The Holy Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam, which means just, say, just not for, even killing the civilians. Yeah, sorry, just for our listeners, means peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. We have English yes. listeners. Sorry, just to add that. Carry oh, on. Okay, so, I should. Yes. I should. Okay. Uh, the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings be upon him. Mm. Actually, he established uh, this uh, these laws of war. Mm. The Holy Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam. <laughs> it was, let's say, even very surprising maybe for the world. Because when he was sending an army, he looks like he's on the side of the enemies to tell them, don't do this and don't do that <laughs> uh, to them. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, that, that shows how the Islamic uh, uh, teachings and commandments are uh, very superior and never knew mm. at, uh, uh, at any kind of civilizations or any other religions before. Indeed. If you look at the Bible, actually, you cannot find any clue about uh, something like this. Right. Uh, so, regarding regarding killing women and children, it's forbidden in Islam, and not even women and children attacking civilians, and not even civilians, even uh, a soldier, if he's not in a fight, if he's not in the battlefield, you cannot kill him, mm. and uh, you cannot even capture prisoners uh, uh, from the army if they are not part of the battle, uh, if, and if it's not even part of. Uh, the running, you can say, battle, battlefield. And that's even, you know, really, actually, this is one of the very nice points in Islam regarding the laws of, uh, uh, of uh, war. Uh, so, uh, you, know, you know, actually, yes, there are some uh, misdeeds have been done by Hamas or by the normal people. Yes. And Hamas should be responsible even if it's for, from the the normal people because if you want to, to start an attack that means you should some sort of have some sort of uh, uh, measurements yeah. to prevent the average people to go and to do such things Indeed. so yes of course actually any m- misdeeds had been done uh, they are uh, condemned by islam and they are uh, not right uh, thank you for highlighting that very important point about the the, the tough laws within Islam about the engagement of uh, rules of engagement for wars, which are so tough. But uh, we know that uh, in in the wars that have been war, uh, fought by the Western world, have been anything like that. For example, if you take the American war in Vietnam, the the scenes about killing innocent children and women was the was the point when the war changed for America. Because before the media was suppressing all that information, but once that information came out, the American people turned on, the, on them as well. And then we know uh, in all the other wars, especially the one in Iraq, 
where they termed uh, the killing of innocent people as collateral damage, as people who get in the way of war, and therefore them, that is perfectly acceptable. But according to you, Islam totally forbids that. Of course, actually, in Islam, using civilians or killing civilians, actually, it's a crime. Mm. And it's condemned by Islam, and the Muslims shouldn't do that. But unfortunately, as you mentioned, uh, regarding the, uh, the rules of war, Mm. which are not declared by the Western people, but regarding practice, actually. They have done this, and they are keeping doing this, and they are now supporting Israel in doing this, which mm-hmm. means killing the civilians is part of the, the engagement rules uh, to target the civilians, even if they would say, for, okay, we don't target the civilians, but uh, we won't just, uh, because we cannot avoid killing the civilians as, Hamas or other groups, they are hiding in between or they are fighting uh, from uh, uh, inhabited areas. If they would say so, actually, and Islam, Islam says you are, not, you are not allowed to do that. You should take very high measurements when you fight uh, to, to avoid killing the civilians. As you mentioned, yes, actually, uh, if you look at uh, the history of the Second World War, for example, uh, it was part of uh, the, uh, the the planning or p- part of the plan to, uh, to to defeat Germany and to defeat uh, Japan. Uh, it was actually they should uh, they should kill uh, hundreds of thousands civilians and they should attack. They they have to attack and they have attacked. Uh, uh, cities in Germany and in Japan, and a huge number of civilians were killed without any sort of any any measurements of taking care of uh, of the civilians, and it was really a savage uh, act, which which was which is part which is shame mm. on the history of, of uh, the humanity. Yeah. Uh, so for them, actually, if they said <laughs> and one of uh, the, 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 the guests that came with Perth Morgan, if, uh, if you remember, actually, he said, and he made it very clear. He said, why we, are, we should stick to the uh, humanitarian laws of war. The only value which we have to, to stick to is to win the war. And we need to do whatever uh, required to win the war. This is the most. This is this is the value. This is the only value that we we should concentrate on. That was so an Israeli a difference between. That w- was that an Israeli sorry? spokesman who said that? Uh, he wasn't an Israeli. I think okay. he's a Jewish. Uh, okay. A Jewish in in UK. I think so. Okay. But uh, that's actually exactly what Israel is doing. Israel is uh, for for years is uh, uh, oppressing uh, the. Palestinians in Gaza and it besieged them and it is, it is uh, an open air prison, the biggest open air prison uh, now uh, because they want, uh, they, and also they terrorize the people, they, they bombed Gaza several times uh, starting from 2006 and uh, there were huge killings actually for, for so many times. Uh, they want uh, to terrorize the people to let them uh, rebel against uh, Hamas, mm. as Hamas took over at that time. So let's say, as part of the policy of uh, of war, or we could, we could say the the laws of war, and according to them, actually, to target civilians, 
that is a normal thing and they can do it indeed uh is is it a case um whereby uh the agenda um of where the israelis say that because the hamas uses the civilians to hide themselves behind does that give them the right to then attack places where civilians are uh, but could be him hamas might be with them as well for example the hospital that has just been attacked uh, there's much criticism uh, it it appeared that the initial tweet by an israeli uh, spokesman or uh, army personnel was that we've hit the target and then that delete that tweet was deleted and then the narrative came out that it wasn't a israeli attack but it was a hamas attack but now the reports which are coming out despite the fact biden says i believe the israelis um uh, we, we we're waiting for backtracking on that because the reports that are coming out seem to indicate that uh, the israeli narrative might not be the truthful one mm-hmm. yeah actually israel until now even yesterday they threatened to bomb another hospital and they asked for uh, evacuation for another mm-hmm. five hospitals uh, and they said they are ready to attack them and they should they should just clear them up uh, so for them they said they are going to bomb the, the hospital and by the way actually their uh, their story about uh, uh, the missile which is the misfire of another group which is al-jabal islami which is part of the engagement now uh, that uh, that was a misfire <laughs> actually if you look at uh, the the all of the missiles which were launched to uh, israel yeah. uh, by the way by in the first day 5000 um, uh, rockets or you can say something like that if they if they can be called as rockets were launched uh, to israel 5000 and if they have the capability uh, or if they have this you can say this uh, mass fire or uh, this strength in uh, their um, uh, in their rockets that means these 5000 they might created at that time a huge devastation in them but they know these rockets when they uh, just uh, land on uh, on the ground they just do very little damage they don't have this uh, fire or or strong explosives with uh, with hamas on with the other groups to kill over than 5,000, even if it's a misfire, you know. And it, uh, the proofs started to appear. And Israeli threatened before that. They, they want to uh, to bomb uh, these, uh, these hospitals. Uh, for them, actually, uh, the Israelis are lying, and the Americans are lying. Israel wanted to kill civilians because they want to put pressure on the civilians to rebel against Hamas and to make them feel that, okay, uh, all of our problems, they came because of Hamas's ruling now, and they want to create uh, uh, this kind of, uh, uh, of uh, you can say, rebellion mm-hmm. against, against uh, Hamas, uh, uh, Hamas governments. By the way, uh, yes. the people in Gaza, mm-hmm. they are not, they are not, uh, they didn't elect Hamas, as some people they said. Uh, the, the people of Gaza they wanted Hamas. Hamas actually, it was one of the militant groups 
and uh, which was created uh, at the time of the first Intifada, mm -hmm. which was formed uh, officially in 1987. And uh, let's say, uh, yes, in one of the elections, which was, I think, in 2005 or 2006, they got uh, most of uh, the uh, the parliament uh, seats mm -hmm. at that time right but uh, then uh, a government was formed uh, um, but hamas as it was uh, the, the government which was uh, yeah hamas was considered as one of the parties right. uh, at the palestinian uh, the palestinian territories but after that they had a coup and they took control in 2006 uh, they they took control of Gaza against the will of the the, the Palestinians Palestinian and the Palestinian people. authority. Right. Uh, so the so the people of Gaza they are they didn't choose Hamas actually, <laughs> and they are not all the supporters of Hamas. And no, and actually, yes. Carry on, not carry on, not carry on. You're making an important point here. Yes, they are not they are not supporters of Hamas. They are not. Uh, and by the way, also. The Hamas is not that, uh, let's see, we can say, actually, yes, they have some misthoughts and uh, misactions, but uh, uh, demonizing Hamas, actually, and considering them as ISIS, it is against, actually, against uh, reality and against the truth, and the uh, Israelis and the Americans, they know that. This is just Hamas propaganda mm, by America mm, and Israel. Mm. Yes, actually, because regarding ISIS, yeah. ISIS, they, they, their ideology is based on that. The Muslims should kill the disbelievers. And uh, they, let's say, they have a problem with other, uh, other religions and mm. other followers, uh, the followers of other religions. Mm. But Hamas, they don't have this. They don't have a problem with the Jewish religion. And they don't have a problem with the Jews. They just believe that we should liberate Palestine all of historical Palestine, and all, all, also they, uh, they, they accepted to, uh, of, uh, let's say, to, to be part of the Palestinian Authority mm -hmm. when they, when they, when they uh, uh, chose at that time to, 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 to go to the elections, and uh, that means they uh, recognized <laughs> let's say the uh, indirectly they recognize Israel yeah. because what's, what has happened after Oslo agreements and uh, the agreement between the Palestinians and Israel mm -hmm. the Palestinian um, uh, the PLO Palestinian Liberation Organization recognized Israel and they just uh, demanded or their claim that we want the, uh, the part of Palestine which was occupied in 1967 only uh, but for Hamas, they accepted it practically. They didn't announce it uh, officially. But uh, for them, uh, let's say at most, they just want to liberate all Palestine. But they don't have a problem with the Jewish uh, religion. Okay. Uh, and they don't kill the Jews because they are Jews. Indeed, that's a good point. I got the lead, my co-host, he wants to ask a question or two. Yeah, yeah. assalamu alaykum, uh, Brother Tamim. One, you're talking about demonizing. Yeah, you're talking about demonizing uh, Hamas. Uh, one of the uh, statements that is often made about Hamas and um, why they sh they are a terrorist organization is because the charter claims the destruction of Israel. Is what's the uh, truth behind that? 
The charter of Hamas, as I told you, actually uh, says that they want to liberate all Palestine. And it was the charter of PLO before. And by the way, actually, when PLO wanted to, let's say, or we can say, they, they gave this concession to accept that we can consider Palestine are just only the border of 1967. Uh, that was actually a great concession that had happened by the, the, the Palestinians in order to establish peace. And they agreed to be to, to have a Palestinian state next to the Israeli state. So for Hamas, actually, this is not something which is strange and which is not also against uh, against sense uh, to to say, okay, Palestine is all of Palestine, and Palestine all was occupied uh, in two stages in 1948 and 1967. Uh, so uh, they don't want to eliminate Israel, and in, in the sense of uh, that, uh, let's say, practically they don't want, mm -hmm. and. Uh, Let's say in uh, ideology, what they think, actually, they want to establish the Palestinian state all over the Palestinian land, which is all Palestine, from the river to the sea. And on the, in, that, uh, in that state, that doesn't mean we will eliminate or kill or, uh, or drive the, the, the Jews outside Palestine. No, no one in Palestine is thinking this way. But means the Palestinians will take control. And what's happened now, by the way, actually the Israeli government, they reject for a very long time, they reject that the, the existence of Palestine and the Palestinians. And they denied them. They said they denied their rights and they denied their existence. They said there is no Palestinians, uh, uh, there are no Palestinians in, in uh, Israel, what they call it, Israel. And they said, uh, actually, the, we have Arabs here, we don't have Palestinians, you know. <laughs> Mm -hmm. And uh, they said, uh, they said uh, we have the right not, uh, let's say, to have the lands of 1967, but we have, uh, let's say, uh, their ideology, which they didn't announce it officially because they don't have a constitution. They believe the the the, the, the greater Israel contains also, by the way, Jordan, part of Egypt, part of Syria, big part of Syria, part of Iraq part of the northern Saudi Arabia, the existing Saudi Arabia. So this was their first uh, plan, which means to have fights and uh, to, to, have, uh, to, to fight and to get more lands. And because of that, they started the war in 1967. And uh, clearly, Golda Meir, when she was asked, where are the borders of Israel? If you can go back to the, uh, to the YouTube, you can mm -hmm. find uh, this interview with her. Mm -hmm. She said, wherever we can reach, these are the borders of Israel. So mm -hmm. for Israel, they denied the existence of the Palestinians, the existence of the Arabs. They, they believe that they have the right to control all over this area, and at least for what they are now uh, capturing uh, of Palestine, they said it is just, it is the Jewish state. And then Yamin Netanyahu, he iterated more and more, and he wanted this, and he had this even announced by the parliament, the Israeli parliament, that Israel is the Jewish state, which means the Jewish that are favorites, uh, uh, they are favored over any other uh, people, any other nationals, and the, the real nationals of this state, um, they are the Israelis. And this is an apartheid, uh, apartheid system, clear apartheid system, in theology, 
in, uh, in ideology and in practice hmm. because they deal with the Palestinians, even who live in the lands of, uh, of Israel now, which means which was occupied in 1948, they are dealing with them as a second or third or fourth class uh, citizens. citizens. Yeah, right. they don't have the rights like the Jewish. Indeed. And for the Palestinians, yeah. actually, yeah, yes, please. Yeah, um, moving yeah. forward, is there anything that the Arab nations can do to resolve this situation? Uh, for, for the Arabs, actually, the, the Arabs, they are incapable, unfortunately, to do anything because the Arab system now is completely uh, helpless, uh, which means that the, the, the whole system is very weak. And uh, they, for, for a very long time, they were just condemning what Israel was doing. They didn't have anything except condemning the Israeli acts. But unfortunately, it is completely disabled. The system is completely disabled because of so many reasons. Maybe we can discuss them later. But in general, actually, the, the Arab system uh, the, uh, and the, the Arab League and all of uh, the Arab organizations uh, are, uh, uh, we cannot say, they are not really independent. Because, uh, for example, Egypt is the biggest uh, you can see the, the biggest country, and uh, it has the, 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 the strongest army in the area. But they are depending on the support of the Americans and on the funds of the Americans in, the, in their military. So how come they, they are going to fight, for example, uh, for the sake of Palestine or to, to have any sort of uh, uh, kind of uh, 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 opposition which is against the uh, mis- uh, 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 the transgression of Israel and uh, the acts of Israel. Uh, they, they cannot. Uh, in general, actually, the Arab system is incapable to do anything except condemning. And even now, their condemning became uh, more shy and shy and shy. What do you make of King Jordan of the King Jordan's King Abdullah uh, at the Egypt Peace Summit yesterday? Uh, I don't know if you heard it. I'll play a little bit of that. I am outraged. I grieved by those acts of violence waged against innocent civilians in Gaza, in the West Bank, and Israel. The relentless bombing campaign underway in Gaza, as we speak, is cruel and unconscionable on every level. It is collective punishment of a besieged and helpless people. It is a flagrant violation of international humanitarian law. It is a war crime. Our priorities today are clear and urgent. First, an immediate end to the war in Gaza, the protection of civilians and the adoption of a unified position that indiscriminately condemns the targeting of all civilians in line with our shared values and international law, which loses all value if it is implemented selectively. Second, the sustained and uninterrupted delivery of humanitarian aid, fuel, food, and medicines to the Gaza Strip. Third, the unequivocal rejection of the forced displacement or internal displacement of the Palestinians. This is a war crime according to international law and a red line for all of us. It 
that's that's a small part of what uh, King Jordan's uh, Abdullah said. Uh, do you mm-hmm. do you agree with his sentiments, and is that going to have any impact at the summit? Because USA and Israel were were not there. Yes, of course, it was uh, this what he had said. Uh, that's uh, that's the right uh, pos- the, the right thing to say, by the way. Mm. But unfortunately, who's going to listen and who's co- who's going to stop this? Which means this is the most that uh, the King of Jordan or the other Arab leaders that can can do. Uh, but uh, that's all in the hands of uh, the Americans and uh, the Americans only who can uh, force Israel to stop this. But unfortunately, they give Israel unlimited support mm-hmm. and they are supporting Israel in, their, in, her action, in its actions. Sorry. And uh, the, uh, th- that's really very, uh, it was very astonishing. Uh, for, for for the whole world, even for the Americans, even for the Jews in the United States. Mm. You heard about the demonstrations of the Jews in Washington. They said these crimes and this uh, cruelty shouldn't be uh, done on the ends of us, you know. So it is very clear what is uh, what is done now is completely against justice, against the humanitarian laws, against... Uh, uh, any any noble values, and it, uh, they, what Israel is committing now, Israel is committing war crimes, cruel war, war crimes, and they should be condemned and should, they should be stopped immediately. Do you think that uh, one last question, Tamim uh, said, because we've got other guests as well? Um, do you believe that this will be the game changer, because it seems already? that due to this indiscriminate killing of uh, children and women in Gaza and the attacks on the hospitals and the churches, people are now speaking out and there are large, very large demonstrations taking place around the world, here in the United Kingdom and also in France where Macron tried to ban those marches and yet thousands of people turned up. Do you think this will eventually be the key to changing the position of the West, of America, uh, to what Israel is doing, uh, just like uh, Vietnam, pictures from Vietnam changed the people's view in America? Actually, according to the Quran, Allah said, the whole of the issue will be solved when the people would see the, 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 the real faces, the real faces wow. of the Jews at that time. Allah said, which means when you come and you you will become in power in the latter days, uh, then the the whole issue will be, let's say, the the whole world will discover the real faces. They cannot, let's say, after a while, they cannot cover the cruelty and these uh, criminal acts by diplomacy or by sort of... uh, let's say, by, by seeking protection from the United States or the Western regimes, these actually, they are not going to stay for, for long. The people in the West, inshallah, I hope this will happen very soon, they will discover that their governments actually, they are acting against, uh, against justice, mm. and they will discover why we have this unlimited support to the cruelty and to the criminals of Israel, uh, to the criminal acts of Israel. Uh, so, inshallah, one day, 
that would make a change, inshallah. But uh, let's say, uh, at the time being, hope that will stop the blood path in, uh, in Gaza uh, and uh, hope that will not need another 5,000 uh, casualties or uh, civ- from civilians mm. uh, in Gaza to let them think about stopping this uh, this massacre and carnage that's uh, going on in Gaza. Indeed. Uh, Tamim thank you very much for joining us and sharing your thoughts and views. Uh, strong Good views at that. <coughs> and uh, we look forward to discussing uh, more of the history of uh, the situation there. And uh, we'll have you on the show once again, I'm sure, very soon. Jazakallah. Jazakumullah. Thank you very much. Jazakumullah. 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 Right. We're we'll mm. coming on to Zisha now. We'll discuss some more. But I think one was, thing was very clear from what uh, the Mimsa was saying, that it is the killing of the innocent which is what's upsetting the most. And uh, whatever the politics of it is, it is that that what must stop. Mm. And it is that, I think, that will change people's view and put pressure on governments. Your thoughts? Yes, I think um, uh, views are changing because this is being uh, exhibited through the demonstrations that we're seeing. And we know that uh, a lot of the Jewish sections of our communities are also uh, raising voices against that, Mm. Uh, especially the young uh, Jews. And I think here we need, it's important to draw a distinction between Zionism Mm. and Zionist Jews and Mm. Jews as a whole. Because not all Jews are in favour of the Zionist policies. Zionism is the political movement to have a a land called Israel, Uh, whereas Judaism is a faith which people follow anywhere in the world. And not all Jews are Zionists. Uh, We have so many uh, Jews that are speaking against what Israel is doing and what Zionism stands for. Mm. They think it's against the Jewish faith. So uh, that distinction is very important because I think that we should not conflate the two Mm. because it gives rise to anti-Semitism. Exactly. And that's and that's and that the too, case. Yes. And that too is uh, deplorable. Yeah. Uh, so yes, Zionism yeah. is a is a philosophy is mm. a, is is a teaching that is an abhorrent one. Yes. Yeah. Very right wing. Some people, I know they they will object to it, but uh, some people compare it with Nazism, right? Mm. So it is one that uh, considers the Jewish race superior and everybody is inferior. And that, uh, and that the land of Palestine should only be for the Jews, mm. like uh, Brother Tamim was saying. Yes. So, so that that distinction has to be drawn. It has to be drawn because I I, I know for a fact I know that on, on TV you'll hear a lot about uh, Arabs or Palestinians want to obliterate Jews, mm. which is not the case. Uh, if there's some extreme thinkers like that, that's extreme. But there are many Jews, particularly in America who want to obliterate all of Palestinians. Yeah, and even yeah. Nikki Haley, oh, yeah. uh, mm. the American candidate who was a UN uh, ambassador for United yes, States, yes. In the, when asked the question, what would you do if you were the president, because she's standing for, elect, uh, for mm. the Republican yes. candidacy, she said, I've told Netanyahu, you should wipe them all. You mm. should wipe them clean. You should yeah. kill them all. Mm. So mm. this is the thinking that it's them who are talking mm. about obliterating people, yeah. not... Yeah. Not, not, yeah. not the Palestinian mm-hmm. people. Anyway, lots to talk about still, and we, I'm sure we will. Uh, let's come to the Ask Imam segment of the show. Sorry, Daniel, for ho- making you wait. When you're in the studio, you do, you're here at 11 o'clock and, and you're sharing to the voices. So sorry to keep you waiting for that <coughs> long. Uh, but uh, we were going to bring you on around about half past 11. Assalamu alaikum. Wa alaikum assalam. Wa alaikum assalam. Wa 
Waalaikumsalam. Yeah. No worries. I um, truly enjoyed listening to the conversation so far. I just missed um, not being able to join in in the conversation. No, no, uh, you're with us in spirit and on the phone and we can hear you loud and clear. Daniel, I just wanted to cover some aspects of the Holy Prophet's life around wars. There's much accusation made by Westerners um, that uh, the Holy Prophet waged wars, he was a warmonger, that type of thing, All, all, all false we know. But let's get a spirit of understanding of these wars. First of all, can you tell us about how the first battle occurred and the background to why it occurred and where did it occur? Uh, did it occur where he lived in Mecca or was it in uh, elsewhere? All the circumstances why that first battle took place. Did he initiate it or was it imposed upon him? This is the first question. Right, okay. So... Um this obviously has been covered extensively in history books on pages and pages, but I'll try to really just um, con- condense it into a, a, a couple of minutes. So um, in the first, I believe it was 13 years of um, the prophetic mission of the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. He used to live in Mecca, um, and they were the Muslims, early Muslims were heavily persecuted there. <clears throat> Eventually, when the Holy Prophet um, was told by God Almighty, instructed by God Almighty to migrate, he migrated to Medina. Now in Medina, that's when the Islamic calendar begins um, from the date of the Hijra of the migration. In second Hijri, in the second year of the migration, um, what happened was that, so up until then... How far is Medina from Mecca? Oh, it's, uh, I don't remember the kilometers. 200 miles, 200 miles, about 300 kilometers, something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. By car, I remember when we traveled, it took yeah. about four, four hours, yeah. five hours. Maybe. Yeah. The speed <laughs> the speed train is two hours, 20 minutes, by the way. But <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I, I didn't go when, when the train existed. No. <laughs> <laughs> Excuse yeah. me. We're all but, coughing. Yeah, anyway, yeah. So, so um, for the first, let's say, about... So, so he, left Mecca, he left Mecca under persecution. Yeah. He, he went to Medina 300 miles away, well away, yeah. considering you had to travel by land and it took several days to get there. So he yeah. just wanted to avoid the persecution and he yeah. did not want to engage in any wars. Absolutely, absolutely. Okay. But then um, his hand was forced in a way where um, there was a caravan, a Meccan caravan, which was returning from Syria, a trade caravan. And the purpose of the caravan and all the profits um, received from that caravan were clearly to be used in preparation for um, annihilating the Muslims in Medina by the Meccans. So, right? the, so the Meccans basically pursued the Holy Prophet. Uh, yeah. They weren't satisfied with him leaving Mecca. They wanted to actually obliterate him and, and have him removed altogether. Absolutely, absolutely. Right. So okay. um, seeing this uh, and through divine instruction of God Almighty that due to persecution and um, difficult circumstances. The Muslims are allowed to defend themselves um, by the aggressors. Mm-hmm. Um, the Holy Prophet and his companions um, set out to initially in- intercept that caravan, um, but by then the Meccan army had already uh, prepared and left, um, and, and they were on their way to Medina to uh, to destroy the Muslims. Right. right now, bear in mind that, as you mentioned, two three hundred miles away, you know the prophets. Uh, the Prophet, peace be upon him, he moved out of town, he moved out of Mecca so that the you know, the pagans could have been left in peace and they didn't need to come and provoke uh, anything. But they decided to march towards Medina anyway. Um, and 
due to that, the Holy Prophet and uh, peace be upon him and his companions, they also, you know, took up arms and set out set out from Medina. That's also an important point. Um, so back in those days, um, you know, wars weren't fought within cities. Civilians weren't really. It was it was um, attempted that civilians wouldn't be involved in war. And you know what? To be fair, even um, just a century ago, even the Western world um, used to fight war in, in that sense. In World War One, mm. they would fight in the trenches rather than in the cities. Right. Um, so credit where it's due. Up until then, they also had a sense of uh, uh, civility with regards to that. Yeah. But yeah, the Holy Prophet set out from Medina. Um, the Meccan set out from Mecca, and then they met at a place called Badr, right. and that's where the first battle occurred. So basically, the Holy Prophet to prevent any of the civilians of of Medina, women, children, elderly, or any non-Muslims not to be engaged in the war, he moved out of Medina to anticipate the attack from the Quraysh coming from Mecca so that the people of Madanites could be safe and only the companions of the Holy Prophet, the converted Muslims, would be engaged in the war and not the civilians. Yeah, so much so that even uh, when he was, um, he was, he was uh, checking his ranks, when they had left Medina, he was just observing his ranks and then he saw that there was a young, um, younger um, child, he was about 14 years old, mm-hmm. who wanted to um, be part of the war. So he, the Holy Prophet insisted that the teenager return home because right. he didn't want children in his army, right? right. Um, he just wanted adult, male adults who were able to fight. So n- not senior elderly citizens, no women, no children, just men who were able and willing to fight. And, and, how, and how many people were with him? And they were all men, you say? Yes, so there were a total of 313 um, companions with him. Okay. Uh, and that's the famous number that we know as, as well now, that the 313 Badri companions. And what was what did the army have with them to fight? Oh, they were they. You can tell that the Muslims they didn't uh, they weren't the aggressors themselves because they didn't have much uh, defensive equipment, much um, offensive equipment either. They didn't have real armor. They didn't have proper weapons. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas the Meccan side, which consisted of <laughs> a thousand a thousand fighters, they were all well equipped and well-prepared and uh, battle-hardened warriors who Mm. who came to fight the Muslims. And on the other hand, we had the Muslims, the majority, a lot of them being the Ansar, the helpers from Medina, who were actually farmers. They weren't warriors themselves. So there was no need, there was no want for the Muslims to go and um, fight the Meccans. It was actually just imposed upon them. So there were 313 mostly uh, unequipped to fight. Um, hardly any weapons with them, facing an army of a thousand warriors, fully armed. Animals played a key role in wars because you needed food and water to be carried as well. Uh, What was the comparison of animals for the Muslims and for the Meccans? Yeah, the comparison, um, you might might remember the exact figures better than me, but the Meccans were very well equipped. They had horses and camels, Mm -hmm. Um, so they had their cavalry, they had everything that they needed. The Muslims, as far as I remember, I might be wrong, uh, but I believe that they only had one or two horses or one or two camels. Mm. Two horses. Uh, Release says two horses, that's all they had. (coughs) So uh, hardly equipped to fight a war, basically. Absolutely. So, so they moved to Badr to protect the civilians of Medina, uh, uh, a nation which invited them, a tribe of Jewish people lived there, who had invited them, and the Holy Prophet avoided them in, to, fully involved in the, uh, sorry, avoided them to be involved any 
in any way or shape or form uh, to be involved in the war. So once they get to Badr, what what happens there? Obviously, uh, it's uh, Prophet Muhammad and his companions who leave and go to Badr. They arrive at Badr first. What do they do? Yes, yeah, so they um, set up camp um, in a place which was close to uh, a well um, so that they would have a good and constant water supply. Um, but the problem with the place that they set up camp at was that it was quite sandy. So it would have been um, it would have been difficult uh, to maneuver uh, during the battle. But you know that's the place that they got. The Meccans had already taken a place which was which had solid ground, um, uh, and it would have been easier to fight on, on there. Yeah. But then uh, God Almighty, um, you know, uh, sent rain down um, overnight, and uh, it turned the tables where the ground of the Meccans of the pagan army. Uh, became very muddy and slippery, and the sandy ground of, that the Muslims were on became very firm and solid. Right. Um, so the tables turned in that sense. But um, yeah, so this was the distinction in between where where they both set up camp. Well, Lee, I remember when we were discussing the life of the Holy Prophet, we discussed, but there was something about the water wells that you had mentioned. Uh, do you remember anything on that? Um, I think well, there were two water wells, if I'm not mistaken. There were a number. Okay. And uh, the, the uh, Muslims were able to take control of the water wells. Yes, because they're right there and they yeah. could, yeah, in Canada, yes. right. And uh, I don't remember much okay. after that. No, okay, right? that's, that, 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 that's what yes. I can remember yes. as well. Yes. So they I had control that. of the water wells, yes. right? Um, yeah. Yeah. yeah, I think I think what um, uh, what happened after that with regards to control of the water wells yeah. is a really profound lesson for everyone as well, especially in this modern time uh, with the siege on, on Gaza and, you know, the supplies being stopped um, and, and everything. Mm. What happened was that the water well, even though it was under the control of the Muslims, um, at some point some Meccan, um, uh, some Meccan warriors, they came over to the well to take the water. When the Muslims saw this, they were about to go and um, apprehend them. But then the Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, he instructed the Muslims to stand down. And he allowed his enemies, now bear in mind, his enemies who were... Uh, uh, far outnumbering them, who were um, more trained um, to in, in battle, and who were there to annihilate the religion of Islam and the people and the Muslims, mm. um, he allowed them this basic human right of taking water from that well. Um, so you know that's a real lesson um, in humanity for everyone, not just Muslims, but for everyone, even mm. in this modern, especially in this modern age. Absolutely, I mean this is unprecedented. I would have said. I mean, if you see what's happening in in is in Gaza at the moment, where there's a blockade of food, water, medical mm. aid, electricity, mm. uh, and here's the Holy Prophet giving water mm. to the opponents. Yes, right. Yes. Now, this is not a man that wants war. This is a man who's trying to negotiate peace. Out of that mm -hmm. He was full of compassion, and when you know, it's not only in battle, but even when there was a drought and there was famine in Makkah. He actually organized uh, food for the Makkans um, and uh, provisions for the Makkans. So this is something that was very part of his character, right. Uh, right. this sense of compassion. I think these are important things to mm. know, mm. Uh, you know, because these accusations made against the Holy Prophet, these are totally contrary. The, the, the mm. facts tell that we were talking about different, earlier about having to talk and discuss these things to yeah. understand, you get a better understanding yeah. and that hatred, uh, those entrenched views people have mm -hmm. slowly get mm -hmm. uh, yeah. uh, removed. Yeah. Uh, so uh, so th then the battle takes place and the Muslims become victors. Um, am I right? Is there anything else to add to that, uh, Daniel? 
Yeah, I think um, just one one yes. more point with regards to the battle itself. Yes. Um, I know we, um, a lot of your guests have mentioned the war ethics and the rules and regulations of warfare mm. in Islam already. But here's an, an, a prime example of, of this being carried out. So in the war um, mm. against the Meccans, obviously in the Meccan army, there were uh, most of the people were known to, to the Muslims. They were actually their relatives, their kindred, right? Um, because the, a lot of the um, Muslims were uh, emigrants from Mecca. So there were some who had, uh, who, there were some in the Meccan army who the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, he instructed his army to spare um, if they uh, got their hands on them, to not kill them, um, to show them mercy. And the reason for that was because uh, those people had either uh, been kind or merciful or compassionate to the Muslims in the past, or they still were, um, you know, soft-hearted towards the Muslims. They weren't there by their own will. They were kind of forced to be in that situation by the chiefs. They were pressured to be in that situation. Mm. So imagine this. Again, this army has come to destroy you and annihilate you, but the commander-in-chief of your army, which is the considerably weaker army, instructs, your, your people to not kill, um, you know, a, a good amount of people uh, because you could tell that they're not there out of their own free will and they're not there because they're bad people. It's just that they're being pressured to do so. Which, I get, again, I think if we look at the modern context, we can probably also understand that um, in Hamas and also in the Israeli um, defense forces, there, there will probably be a lot of people who do not agree with this conflict and do not want to be there. So that's also important to keep in mind. Indeed. Um, Ulid, anything to add? Uh, yes. Um, uh, when uh, the uh, war, the battle was over, again, uh, his, uh, the compassion of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, shone through. Uh, some people demanded that the prisoners that were taken should be executed. He uh, certainly did not want that to happen. And uh, others that suggested that perhaps they should be exchanged for ransom that is the um, that is the option that he took, and then the prisoners that were taken were kept uh, with dignity and uh, with a degree of respect, mm. um, and uh, they were not tortured in any way. In fact, one of their um, leaders, uh, Suhail bin Amr, who was captured, um, somebody suggested that because of his eloquence, uh, some measure should be taken against him. His eloquence, which he used in uh, in uh, denouncing Islam, mm-hmm. that uh, something should be done to him, and it was suggested that his two front teeth should be broken off because that will prevent him from expressing himself properly, mm. and that will uh, prevent the uh, the vitriol and the vile abuse he heaps on Islam. Uh, Islam. And the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, strenuously uh, strenuously was against against any such action. In fact, uh, Suhail was kept in the in the house of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him. Oh, I see. And uh, they dined together. Mm. Um, so, prisoner of war, mm. dining, dining with, with the Holy yeah. Prophet, peace be upon him. I don't think you'd see yeah. much of that. No, uh, no. We lost and, some. Don't, Daniel. Sorry, and I think it's important to also add that eventually, the, whole, the reason the Holy Prophet spared Suhail ibn Amr was that he said that, who knows, uh, he said this to Umar, um, the second caliph, he said that who knows um, Suhail might use that eloquence in favor of Islam later on. Mm. And later on, when the Holy Prophet had passed away, when some people in Mecca were um, rising up, rebelling against um, the Muslim state, uh, Suhail ibn Amr uh, actually gave a very eloquent speech and uh, calmed down that rebellion. 
Um, so, you know, there was a lot of wisdom in that as well. Uh, mercy um, obviously results in more mercy as well. Um, and also um, a, an important point to highlight is that the reason this is um, very astonishing is that the prisoners of war, war were kept alive because at that time the Arabian practice was to um, execute all prisoners of war or use them as slaves. The Holy Prophet decided to actually keep them um, in very good conditions and allow them to ransom themselves. And those that were too poor <clears throat> to ransom themselves out of that, um, they were actually just let go. A lot of them were just let go for free. And also there were some who could uh, buy their ransom by, if they knew how to read and write, by teaching um, the Muslims how to read and write. And one such person who was taught to read and write was Zayd bin Thabit, a companion, mm. uh, may Allah be pleased with him, who actually went on to become a scribe of the Holy Prophet. So peace and blessings will be upon him. So uh, one of the people who noted down the Quran, the uh, divine revelation, was actually taught by a prisoner of war. So through this merciful system of the mercy of mankind, the Holy Prophet, um, Islam benefited a lot. Indeed. Uh, Daniel, thank you very much for highlighting those very important points and shows that the engage, rules of engagement for war for the Holy Prophet far exceed those set out by even the United Nations. In fact, every single United States resolution, United Nations resolution on human rights is within the Islamic values of engagement of war and generally of human rights as well. So thank you very much for sharing those views and thoughts and uh, for giving us the true picture of how the Holy Prophet conducted his wars. Uh, there were wars of compassion and care for those, even his opponents. Willie, thank you very much for joining me once again. Welcome. Our thanks to Rabbi Jeff Berger for his wonderful contributions and to Tamim Abu Dhaka and to our listeners um, who joined us and uh, as always and uh, listening into our show. Assalamu alaikum.